0: When tragedy strikes, most people crumble. The pain and loss is too much for them and life as they know it stands still. However, there are a select few who have learned to turn tragedy into fuel. They can take an event that would rock most people and use it as motivation, as inspiration, and as the driving force towards a new mission. On today's episode, I welcome retired Master Sergeant Steve Nesbitt, an Air Force Pararescue jumper who served at the highest echelons the U.S. Special Forces have to offer. We talk about his career, his role as a PJ, and how a tragic event and witnessing the death of a close friend has motivated him towards his new mission, a mission that continues to this day and serves as the driving force towards his goal of supporting the warriors returning home from the battlefield. This is the story of Shields and Stripes. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Ready Room Podcast.
1: live. You ready? I am ready. All right, do game it. on on Welcome
0: uh, <clears throat> to the Ready Room Podcast. All right, folks, I'm here with Steve Nesbitt, 16-year Air Force PJ, right? That's right. We're at your house. We've got the dogs hanging out. Your wife's doing CrossFit training in the living room. <laughs> is this a normal day in the office here? This, this is, is a regular day. This is what day. happens now? Yeah, this is it. Awesome. So hey, before we get going into the like the meat and potatoes, uh, you're training for something? Currently, right.
1: I'm trying to train for the uh, 2023 CrossFit Games. But it's going to be a long journey. Long journey. A lot of time. A lot of a lot of discipline. So hopefully, hopefully we can knock it out and you know devote a lot of time to it. And, and it's going to be a, a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. So that's part of because uh, you got out when I got out in June of this year. So June of 2021. Okay, so
0: this is part of your new mission.
1: Yep. So I set, set myself missions. a new personal goal. And uh, now that I got some time on my hand and able to stay consistent in something. Okay. Um, I am 35 years old, which is significantly older than a lot of the, the other athletes in the market or in that age group um, or, or in the individual category. But uh, I, I think, so I there's, a, you got a chance though.
0: I, I, mean, s- I still think got I got a, got chance. a chance. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, dude, I know I told you I was going to stop and, and, bring some chalk and headbands on the way. That's right. uh, I stopped at the CrossFit store. They were sold out. Some long socks. Sorry, sorry, bro. Yeah, get some sock up to my knees and just cover myself in chalk. (laughs) So next time. Uh, Well, dude, welcome. Thanks for letting me come over here. Uh, We're just uh, kind of central-ish North Carolina, about an hour from Vietnam?
1: Yeah, but an hour west of Fayetteville, about an hour south of of Raleigh. Cool,
0: man. So, dude, we talked about this, man. We're going to get into your background, talk a little bit about PJ life, and then talk about... Really, the the main effort here is Shields and Stripes,
1: like the new mission that you're working on now. Yeah, that's right. So, dude, where'd you grow up? So, I was born in Colorado, Aurora, Colorado. um, And then I grew up and moved to Tucson, Arizona, when I was young, probably a four or five. um, And then spent my entire childhood there. Um, Went to college there for about a year. Um, Just try to study astronomy. And so it was a small community college, and then I found that to be pretty boring. So I started a new path. You had mentioned uh you know, astronomy students are a unique bunch. And, <laughs> and uh, so did you blend in there or what? No, not not entirely. I kind of looked around at, at what who I had around me and and what I was doing. Even though I enjoy looking through some telescopes, enjoy some space space nerd stuff. Um, but I looked around, I was like, this just, this just isn't the demographic. This isn't me. Not the you hardest hit yeah. brothers at, yeah. uh, in the I'm 18 course. years old and I got some, some older, um, silverbacks around me. So, um, I needed to, to make a change. I knew I had, still had, I had some fight in me. I didn't know what it was, but, but I just knew that this wasn't my time. Yet. It was not astronomy. Yeah. Astronomy, astronomy. So wasn't you, it yet. you switched it up. Yep. So what'd you switch up to? Uh, I decided to join the military. Um, so my, my dad spent several years in the air force, I decided to go check out a recruiter to see what they're about. Um, went to the Air Force, I actually took an ASVAB test in high school, scored pretty well in that. And I chose a job or a career field, which was a high scoring ASVAB career field. So nuclear weapons apprentice was was the selection that I made. And I'm pretty happy with that. I had a plan in my, in my brain of like, okay, I'm going to do this for a couple of years and then get the GI Bill, go to school, um, and then get out, work for Raytheon, building some missiles. And oh, you had the plan. So I had, a, pl- yeah, I had a full missiles plan. Yeah, I was like, okay, this is. And, and several of my friends were engineers, and I just never got into it. But I was like, oh, I'm going to do what my friends do. Um And so started thinking about that path as I as I exited the Air Force recruiter office right next door as an Army recruiter, and he stopped me as as I started leaving, and he's like, hey. Let me have a a conversation with you. And I didn't have any interest of joining the army. That that was one thing I didn't want to do, but he did say, Hey, I can give you $25,000 today and you can come join the special forces. And that's the first time anybody ever considered me to be like able to be in a special operations career field. So I listened to what he had listened to what he said. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'll be back. um, In a minute. Let me go talk to these guys, um, the, the air force recruiters. So I went back over to the air force recruiters, asked them if they had a special operations career field. Um, and they said, yeah, we do, but you already selected something and, and you wouldn't make it anyway. Like you, it's a 90% attrition rate. You're too small. Let's just stick with what you got. And that man really motivated. Yeah. And I was like, this a hole. (laughs) And so I was like, well, let me, let me take a look at it. And so I looked at the different career fields and we have combat control and, and, and pair rescue. And so I actually looked at being a, uh, a combat controller. We have an intruder.
0: What's the intruder's name? That one's name is Suri. Suri. So he constantly tries to kill me. So uh, for our studio audience, we have three diehard fans, two dogs, and a cat. Uh, You want (laughs) to introduce our fans to to the audience? Yeah,
1: we have Faith, Loyal Faith. We got Lulu, who's a a little yellow lab retriever. Um, Often likes to run away. And then Suri, the cat, which tries to kill me. Awesome. Very regularly. So I I feel... Very appreciated
0: here (laughs) because normally there's no fans. Yeah. But uh, so cool, man. So this awesome recruiter. So backing up actually a minute, uh, the Army recruiter, I mean, he, there's a percentage of responsibility due to him for pitching you a 25 grand soft job. Otherwise, you probably would not have gone back to the Air Force recruiter.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. If I had, if he hadn't been right there at that right time and said those, those words to me and I, I definitely would have, it would have been a very different path. Um, at least this past 16 years, missile designer, <clears throat> nuclear yeah, de- designing missiles, Got and it. and probably hating hating that job. Gotcha. So um, all right,
0: so t- take it away from when uh, <coughs> when they said you're too small, attrition rate, you're not going to make it. Really good motivating speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what?
1: Yep. So the, so I actually looked at the two different jobs and, and read about it, and I was like, you know what, combat control sounds sounds interesting. Sounds like that's my gig. And so I started training for it, and we take a pass test or physical ability and stamina test. Um, so it's basic mile and a half run, 500 meter swim, push ups, sit ups, pull ups, um, all all with different requirements. And so I was training for that a very specific, um, I guess, method to it as far as the the run being first and then the swim and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so when I went to actually take that test, they said, "Which one are you taking?" And I was like, um, "I thought there was only one." And they're like, "No, one has the swim before, one has it after." I was like, well we'll we'll do the one with a swim, swim after, or something like that. And so um started to do that. And once I finished and I accomplished it pretty well, the dude said, All right, well, you're gonna be a PJ. And I was like, uh that's that's not what I that's not what I thought. That's not what I signed up for. He's like, No, when you get to indoc you can decide whatever you want to be. Um it's the same place, you guys go to the same place, and then you make a decision there. So there were the two avenues were PJ or combat controller. Right. So
0: real quick, what are each of those?
1: So combat controllers, typically the, like their motto is first there. Um, typically the, their real job is to actually land aircraft in, on a desert landing strip out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so they can do samples of the of the grounds, uh, at least density levels to be able to land C-130s, C-17s, things like that, um, onto a desert strip pretty much anywhere in the world that's uh, suitable um, for the weight limit that they have. Additionally, once the the war really started to kick off, and it, people found out that they know how to talk on a radio, um, <laughs> they they took over a JTAC position. Okay, um, and then that became what they became most well known for, which is dropping ordnance and dr- dropping bombs on bad guys. Okay, um, a PJ um, typically um, the actual mission is to rescue down and injured aircrew members um, behind enemy lines. But as we started to evolve in this new war on terror, there's no, there was no defined enemy lines. And um, though we were still there for personnel recovery and aircraft, they, the requirements for actually doing CASAVAC, you know, in regards to IEDs, mass casualties, basic, you know, single pickups, point of injuries um, that became um, the new routine mission set. Um, And so, we could rescue, we do civilian rescues too. Um, so I spent time in Vegas and I did some civilian rescues out there um, and, you know, pretty much any environment, uh, snow, ice, mountain, water, um, out in the desert, you know, flying, jumping, you name it. We had to be proficient at it. We had to be good at it. We're never a master at anything, but but good at everything. Got it.
0: So PJ is what, you know, we refer to what we call you guys. Right. But what's the technical
1: term? Uh, Para rescue. Okay. Para-rescue men. Yep. Got so, it. and the J is pararescue jumpers what what they typically were referred to back in Vietnam. Okay. So you finish
0: this, you take this test and they say, Hey, you're going to go PJ. <clears throat>
1: then what? And then I said, okay, I guess I'll decide when I get there and I'll continue down the combat control path or I'll research PJ some more. And then I started doing some research. And even though I wasn't really into medicine, I didn't really want to do anything with medicine. I was just like, "All right, well, we'll see what it's about. And, and really my biggest goal was to get through in doc I didn't really care about anything so you did, anything after you did that. essentially zero homework for you went in you're, you're learning on the job exactly okay nice yeah I was just there there to accomplish something because somebody it. told me I couldn't do it yeah yeah so we showed up uh, you know I joined 05 um in October and then went through we started with 120 um, folks or at least candidates going through the, the, the process and again I was going through basic training and we had about 20 20 or so you know combat control and PJ candidates going through, and at night they're all wor- they're working out. They're doing extra pull ups and push ups in in you know in the barracks. And I'm going to I'm, I'm going to sleep because I'm tired. Right. <laughs> and I and I was like, man, like these guys are still getting after it, but I'm I'm too tired for that. I'm going to sleep. Yeah. And uh that drill instructor, he would always come up to me and s- tell me I'm not I'm going to be the one to quit out of all of them. And I was like, I I mean I, this dude doesn't know me, but I mean they're all working out harder than I am. I, I guess. Maybe I don't know. I guess we'll see. And then by the end of it, and it's you know two weeks of preparatory at least back then it was two weeks of preparatory, and then ten weeks of, of the actual in doc course. And a lot of that was water oriented. So at least half of it was spent time in the water. <clears throat> so you know you can do as many push-ups and pull-ups as you want. If you don't have the water game, then yeah, then you're it, you ain't if gonna you make. Sink, it. Sink. Nobody yeah, cares. You yeah, can exactly. If you push-ups. panic, yeah, if you panic in that water, then. And you're done. So by the end of that, all of those dudes that were in the same basic training classes as my, as me, they all quit. And so I was the only one to make it out of all those guys. And of 120 people that finished or, or that started only 12 of us really finished. So that literally is 90%. Yeah. So nine out of 10 mm-hmm. dudes drop out. Yeah. Is it because of the water? Is that the great equalizer? It's what I've heard. It, I guess yeah, the the water, but it's, it was more the anxiety. Like they they didn't know how to handle the anxiety and the, and the mental game. So you would actually see more people quitting in the morning. So you'd, we'd start and we wake up at you know three a.m. go to breakfast, you know three thirty four in the, four in the morning, and you would see a line of people of, of our candidates in their blues standing outside of the, uh, the barracks there because they're all showing up to quit. And so you know that that was the biggest time period is that waking up and knowing today is going to suck. And she so was in between. Yeah. So did, did a lot of guys drop out during, because I've read that you,
0: most dudes will quit in between an evolution. So it's that mental mm-hmm. anxiety of, like you said, you wake up this next day is going to suck. Right. I don't want to
1: experience this. I'm dropping. Yeah. Cause they get the, they get the, in their heads and then they sit there and contemplate. Is this really worth it? Um, we had several quit during our, our hell night or extended training day um and I never saw them quit like the like we were just still going and going and going and then they paused us in the water and then had us turn around and you see like just a line of dudes and you see how many people actually quit and then it really dawns on you like well I guess that's why the pool cleared out and there's more room <laughs> I there's
0: lot, that's Where'd why there's more go? room yeah, there's more wow, room man, in the there's pool there's a lot more room in the pool there's, for us. not
1: everyone's shoulder to shoulder in there and there's, <laughs> you know, there's more room I mean, I, I hated to see, especially friends quit, but it was nice to, I don't know, to see that I had more grit than they did. And, and, you know, my mindset going through there was, I, (laughs) it's gonna sound bad, but I enjoyed seeing other people suffer worse than I did. Yeah. And so I looked around at like who was around me and I said, man, that dude looks like he's having a really hard time. At least I'm not that guy. And then when it comes time to where I look around and nobody else is having a worse time than me, then I know I'm that guy. Okay. And I'm like, I, I better, I better fix this real quick. Cause then I'm going to become the target of the instructor. So sure. I need to make sure I'm never that guy. That's, that's being found and, oh, and seen because you want to be the gray guy going through. You never want to be seen. Yeah. Standard of the radar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so were you a naturally decent swimmer? No, I only started swimming about six months before I, I uh, joined, but I, I did a lot of, I guess research on water training, right. things like that. So I, that's all I did. Almost every single day, I would go to to the base there in Tucson, Davis Month and go to the pool and just practice underwaters and practice, um, you know, breathing on a snorkel. I'd, I'd just practice freestyle swimming, all these different things to try to make myself better. I, you know, breathe through a straw at night in my bed um, to wow. try to to try to increase my lung capacity and and control my heart rate. And so that was the biggest thing was focusing on that, and I had some training partners, um, and then they just stopped showing up, like they didn't they they started quitting before we even started the training. so I knew at least I knew I was you know well off more well off than they were, at least mentally to
0: start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you were describing the guys who were struggling at all the aviation stuff like water survival we do as pilots, yep. I was the dude in every single water event that they were watching because I, I think I've legally drowned three times. Like when you go underwater and yeah. you know, the Baywatch orange buoy, you know, they have the, you know, there's the Navy yeah. chief walking down, just waiting to chuck it at somebody. I was that guy. I was every single time. Oh yeah. Hey, there's Goble watch him. He's going to drown for sure. Cause he drowned yeah. last week and the week before. <laughs> uh, so dude, I had to go to remedial swim every single time. I had to do a swim call and even tried cheating and that failed. And I drowned that time. Uh didn't work. So, I I would have been the dude you'd be looking at like, hey, Goble's over there drowning. There's Susan. He's he's going to die. I'm doing better than him. Yeah, exactly. So,
1: yeah, you were my motivating factor.
0: Well, dude, yeah. I'm glad there were guys that could <laughs> could make up for that. So yeah, absolutely. So what is the uh, when you finish PJ training? There's a dozen of you guys left. What
1: happens next? <clears throat> yep. So so we finished that first that ten week or twelve week course, and you know, like that's like, man, well, I can't believe I did that, and I was selected, and but then you realize all right, well, that was just the first step in the journey. And then you realize there's a whole nother year, you know, maybe two years left of training, right? So airborne, free fall, survival, EMT basic, EMT paramedic, and then the prayer rescue apprentice course and all these things put together. And, and there's like, all right, I really didn't complete anything. And so yeah, you just got in
0: the door. Yeah,
1: exactly. And then you finish PJ school and you get your beret and you're like, man, what a fantastic feeling. And but it was never enough. Like, it was never like, Oh, I reached it. Cause then you go to the, your unit and now you're the new guy at the unit. And so you get there and have to learn how it's actually done. You know, how different things are done. Tactics, shooting, CQB, um, doing Rams draw, things that we didn't train for as a, in the pipeline. Now you have to be proficient at learn and be better at. Um, so then you never reach the top and, uh, and then you deploy and then you start, you're just always learning, always constantly learning the, the next step and what, you know, what makes you better. So all those schools you mentioned, and there's a ton of schools. I mean, that's a lot of schools. Yeah. You
0: said airborne. Mm-hmm. Did you have to go to a combat dive school? Is that part of it? And the- dive school, yeah. So airborne, dive, CQB, which is close quarters battle. Um, so give a quick, so there's so many acronyms, you know, mm-hmm. for anybody who might actually listen to this, you know, what what's CQB?
1: Uh, so entering a, entering a house um or a building some sort of structure and then doing uh you know engaging a target with inside of there um, assaulting a compound is, yeah. is typically what what we're trying to do it for at least in my capacity um otherwise we're in a rescue capacity we're assaulting the same building or, or size but just trying to get a foothold in there to bring patients in got it um, so the uh
0: so clearing rooms clearing houses urban warfare close mm-hmm. quarters that type thing so <laughs> dude I'm just I'm putting all these all these resume bullets in line. So you can clear a house, bring in casualties, treat the casualties. Well, actually let's, let's back up so you can jump out of the airplane yep. to the urban village to clear the town, to get the casualties or bring the casualties in to then treat them to then evac them. What else? What am I missing? And maybe if there's water there, you have to swim across a river or something. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and
1: you know, depending on what it is, like you jump in the, you jump in the ocean Um, we used to jump with tanks on our back, um, into the ocean. They they don't do that anymore, but, uh, yeah. And, and doing that same stuff in any environment, you know, hot, cold, wet, whichever, probably the worst environment is, is your chem bio. So like the beginning, beginning of, uh, I, I would say 2015 was that was really a big chem bio, um, are you, dro- are you are you wearing mop gear? Jumping in mop gear? Yeah, so you would wear it just but without the mask, jump in there. You oh, have a suit on, jump in and then you get down and then throw your mask on. Okay, so uh <clears throat> we'll break that one down. So that is
0: your your chemical weapons uh, suit. We'll just leave it like that. Minus your yeah. mask. You're jumping in a, a snowsuit. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. dude. That sounds yeah. less than fun.
1: It is horrible. This is not a very fun experience. So <laughs> jumping and skydiving is great, and then the military ruins it yeah. by putting all this stuff on you. Got it. Got so it. That, yeah, and then doing it at night in, in the most terrifying environment imaginable. So. There's some recruiting right there. <laughs> Plug for being a PJ. Yeah. If you like skydiving, miserable,
0: be a PJ. All right. Sweet. <laughs> Dude, so what is the – you get to your unit. What's the PJ
1: culture like as a new guy? <laughs> as, as a new guy? Yeah, um, let's go new guy and then
0: yeah. – you know, as you, you know, elevated your career, what it was like as you got to be more senior.
1: As a new guy, you would show up and you're, you're doing everything. You're, you're cleaning. You know, I went to Okinawa um, as my first duty assignment. So I'm always cleaning the jet skis, cleaning the boats. I, I didn't leave the office or the building until like 7 p.m. almost every night, building ramps, packages, doing stupid tests and just like you're being always, you're always being evaluated every single day. You're being evaluated by your, your supervisor or whoever's above you and your team leader, your element leader, and making sure that you could perform at at a right level and and, and at a good level. And so I wouldn't say there was much mentorship as there was just fear of failing. Like, Hey, I don't want to mess up in front of these guys. And you're expected to be a better medic than them because you just finished paramedic and you just did a bunch of medicine. Um, but then there's that, that confidence of I haven't done it for real other than on civilians during our clinical rotations. So how did you establish credibility with the rest
0: of the guys in your unit as a new guy?
1: I, With me, I, well, there's two ways to do it. You would either hang out with a team, do do everything you could with the team. You know, even if you didn't like it, I didn't like playing basketball. Um, but I showed up at 5 in the morning and played basketball with them just because I had to be a part of the team. If you started making yourself an outsider and choosing not to do stuff with a the team then then you've already you've already lost the battle. Right. And then secondly is is taking that initiative to to take out the trash, those small things. Take out the trash, vacuum up the the room, the office, making sure everything's spick and spam, show up early, have the right gear, be in the right uniform. Those are like the very basic things. If you can't dress yourself, you know it's a sad day when a grown man can't dress himself like those are those are some things like very basic things that, that'll earn yourself some credibility and then everything else you can you can uh, learn and be taught. Yeah. You know, especially, so if, they didn't expect you to be,
0: you know, uh, I don't know the Audie Murphy version of a PJ, but they doing those little things, not being too cool, kind of maintaining some humility that helped gain credibility.
1: Right. Exactly. I, what I didn't like as a, as a team leader, when I was, when I was a team leader and element leader, I didn't like when, new guys showed up with a t- chip on their shoulder because they've got the beret and then they, they think they've made it to the top. And I and then I made it a point that they did not make it to the top yet. <laughs> hey, new guy. Yeah. Hey, here's a memo
0: for you. Uh, how a- much was, this was something that people, I think, uh, underestimate how important it is when you show up on time in the right uniform and you're physically in shape. Right you know, the importance of that first impression. <clears throat> yeah. So vice. So did you show up in pretty good
1: shape? Uh I feel like I did. Um Yeah. I, I felt like I, I showed up pretty, pretty good shape, but then you're also comparing yourself to other dudes that, that, you know, showed up with me. I showed up with a, um, a human anom- anomaly that this dude was just, he never worked out and he would, you know, drink and, he'd even smoke and whatnot. And he was just always outperforming me. And I'm like, gosh, how does this dude doing there? like, (laughs) you know, I wasn't a very big guy. Yeah. Yeah, I was like 150 pounds at that time and not a very big dude, but you know, I had a lot of heart. Wasn't going to quit and give up, but you know, I was willing to do the hard stuff. Um, so nothing came easy, but when we have like competitions, you know, like 30 clean and jerks with a 135 pound, um, on the bar, I, uh, I wasn't doing it as fast as some of the other guys. And so, that was a little bit of a wake up call, but, but as long as I'm showing up at the right uniform, right time. And, and I think I used a little bit of my strengths as far as, um, leading, being able to lead a team, even though I had a very young guy, I was able to take those newer guys and, and you know, I guess get them to follow me by learning the processes, learning exactly what needs to be done throughout the day. Or, or, you know, if we're doing AIEs, I'd take care of all the briefs and all that stuff. So, then that became routine.
0: Gotcha. Was there any you know during your time as a new guy, was there any 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 shenanigans or 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 things you struggled with or you know potential pranks?
1: Uh well, we had to, we did have a prank wars while we were in Oki um which which turned out to be get a little carry too far. <laughs> um so we have a couple of traditions. So generally when you show up on team, um you do something called the yarding in and yarding out. Um, And so typically it's a yard um, of beer. It's a, it's a yard glass. It's got a bowl on the bottom wide mouth. And so typically most of them, you know, carry five to seven beers and there's a time limit that you have to drink this. And so you show up and if you don't meet that time limit, then you have to do it again, you know, at a later date or right then if they make you. Um, And so, (laughs) nice very rarely do you do you see somebody drink it and not throw up and so that was you know that was always a miserable experience from day one since showing up to okie and doing a yard of beer to yarding out when i left you know 16 years later um it was still just as miserable and i didn't want to do it you know but but i did it um, because i'm pure pressure
0: what kind of time limit would they give normally
1: um so depending on the yard um, it was between two and a half minutes to three minutes. Oh, um, that's yeah. no joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, it's nonstop. And so, you know, I typically was just like, man, what might, you might as well just fill it up with lake water, you know, cause you're not, <laughs> I'm not enjoying the beer I'm just <laughs> filling up my gut until I throw up and then <laughs> fill it up again. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And then, and then we started a prank wars in, in Oki. Um, and it started, you know, with, it was something very simple, like I set up like a, a protein a bottle upside down over somebody's cage. And then when you open the cage, it's a sliding door. Right. And so I had a piece of paper or, or a cardboard that would move and knock that uh, protein powder over. And then at the same time, a liter of water would pour out as well. So now I just made a cake. His floor of his cage with pr- protein mix. Nice. nice. Yeah. I was like, I oh, got, gotcha. Is <laughs> it was a very, very simple, very funny. And then I left for a deployment. Came back four months later, or four and a half months later, or so, to my entire cage filled with all all of the paper shreddings from from the unit for an entire five months. Every nice. single day, he filled up my he, he lined my cage with cardboard and then filled it up, and I'm talking as high as I stood with paper shred, that's some shredded shredded paper. There, that's yeah, that's every some day work. Yeah, and I was I couldn't believe it, and so. <laughs> Then we did did a couple more pranks, and then it turned into we ended up taking the tires off of one of dude's cars and then hiding it throughout the building in which he never found them, and then he spent the rest of his time on the island riding a bike everywhere he went. <laughs> so you guys never told him where the tires were? We gave him little hints, but he just stopped. It was like a scavenger gave a hunt for his tires. Exactly. That's yeah. pretty legit. And, and then he just gave up. And, you know. <laughs> he just got a bike. Yeah. And then we would do you know a tradition, especially on the island, was takedowns. So as you are leaving the island, you're not coming back. You're going either PCSing or getting out. Um, we would set a very elaborate plan to essentially set you up, You know, put you on a backboard, um, You make you yard out on that backboard, feed you a bunch of booze and beat you up um, and, and dunk you in some water. And, and it's really you know to celebrate your time there. If people liked you, this was a good thing. Like, Hey, you, you like everybody shows up. If you don't get taken down, it's probably cause nobody liked you. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's true. So we would set up some pretty elaborate, you know, uh, events to take them down. Like, you know, broke into one dude's house in the middle of the night and pulled him out of bed. Um, love it. One of our guys, I, I, I took this mess with this car so it wouldn't start. So I drove him home or tricked him, told him he was driving home. And then, Took him down an alleyway where the entire team was waiting. Said, "Hey, man, you got one choice. You either or you got two choices. You either fight and jump out of the car and fight, or you just give up." And uh, and he chose to fight. Good. 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 Yeah. <laughs> get some respect. Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. It was, I like. So. It. so you
0: totally just threw him under the bus. That's, yeah. That's good. Oh yeah. That's good. He needed
1: it. Yep. That's good
0: stuff, man. The versions of that, you know, on the Marine Corps, uh, on the Hornet side, at least, is. There's there's different pranks. We kidnapped mascots, spray painted cars, painted rooftops. Uh, one of this one's my one of my CEOs told me a story. They they were pranking a, a, a neighbor squadron. They made a video. They got one of the guys' wives from another squadron involved. So one of the wives and said, "Hey, we're doing this promotion video. Would you like to be involved in in this promotion video?" And she's like, "Yeah, sure, I would love to." And they're like, "Okay, well." All we're gonna do is we're gonna video you video you getting into this limousine and uh and then we're gonna they sold her on something. So what they did is so they video her getting the limousine, then they cut it and they made a separate video of each pilot from the squadron getting in the limousine and then getting out. You see where this is going. <laughs> yeah. And then at the end of it, she gets out. Yeah. And they sent that to the squadron. Oh my god. <laughs> and it was like and dude, it, there was almost like a legitimate, not just a fun filled brawl, but it was yeah. almost a, an actual, a real brawl, a real brawl. Yeah. And the, obviously that her, her husband was less than fired up yeah, um, or less than happy, I should say. Yeah. But, uh, he was like, yeah, he's like, Susan, you know, that's something we did. I don't recommend doing that. I'm like, yeah, I'm thanks, sir. I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm tracking on that one. So yeah. it's <laughs> good to you hear you guys have some fun. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's awesome, man. So dude, so training finishes up,
1: you're in your unit. And then, how long before you deployed? Um, my unit, um, I was in a special tactic squadron. So, we augmented um, the 24th STS um, and in a CSAR rotation. And so, typically, you would go to a train up, and then it was almost like a selection process to to get to go on those deployments. Got them um, Because usually, you know, they're, they're with a, a higher tier organization, and, and you're going to be exposed to a lot more. Okay. Things and so, so
0: you're again. With, we got to break down some acronyms a little bit. Yeah. So combat search and rescue. Mm-hmm. That's your main mission. You're right. And you're attached yeah. to at this point. Are, are you attached to a traditional line unit or a soft
1: unit? So we'd be at a soft, at a supporting directly supporting a soft unit. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so we would only send one at a time to these these train ups. And so my rotation didn't happen. I finished in 2008 or graduated in 2008 and I didn't deploy till 2010. Okay. Um, I did a lot of other TDYs and things like that, but, a um, combat deployment was in 2010. Where'd you
0: guys go in 2010?
1: Uh, to Eastern Afghanistan. All right. Yep. And So, um, yep. Spent four and a half months out there. Um, in J bad, J bad
0: for listeners. J a lot Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, you've probably heard that somewhere.
0: If you, if, if you pay attention to history at all, it's a lot of bad. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. So
1: how was that first deployment? Kinetic? It was, Quiet? it was busy. A little bit of both. Um, it's, yeah. I would say that it, I knew it was going to be, I knew it was going to be busy because it was summertime. Um, and so summertime is typically your, your most busy months. You know, you're, you got Ramadan in there. Um, and, then the, and then the Northeastern portion of, of Afghanistan has always been, been hot. It's always been busy. Um, and, and the third day I was there, we, our base got significantly got, got attacked. Um, and so that was the first time that I had gotten shot at. And I didn't know, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was like. And, and so that was a pretty entertaining story. So, so typically we were working at night and then we're sleeping during the daytime. And so I was getting a tan on Absolutely. the roof. Sure. Yep. Sure. So Cause that's the what PJs roof. do. Right? Yep. Yep. Board, Board shorts, shorts flip flops, one yep.
0: chair. Yep. Yeah. Yep. There you go. So Get some bronze in. Yep. How's Got the Afghanistan
1: it? sun? It's boiling hot. <laughs> you know, so. so you're roasting. Yeah, exactly. So Absolutely. I'm there taking it in with one of the, one of the other guys, one of the other PJs and we see an explosion, you know, not, not too far away and stand up and start just looking. And it was on the, you know, breaching one of the, one of the fences of the compound or the base. And it wasn't close enough to really get in the fight. It was close enough to see it and be like, okay, this is gonna be a good show. And then I kept hearing like snaps, like just like just like somebody snapping behind. Actually, it sounded like somebody shooting below me. And I looked down and I was like, man, somebody shooting? Like, I mean, how do they? What are they shooting at? Like, I can barely see these people and whatnot. And so, kept hearing those. And then I I heard a couple whizzes. And I was like, I think maybe someone's shooting at me. (laughs) And I looked down and then you could see rounds impacting the, the wall or the root the you know the, the building I was standing on. You could see the rounds hitting it. I was like, Hey, they're shooting at us. And so <laughs> and so we laid down and then, you know, shouted to the other ranger groups, like, hey, you know, guys get down. We're getting we're taking fire. And so a couple of them actually just jumped off of the building um, and then broke their ankles. Um, so then they then got sent home. <laughs> so you know, on their early on in their deployment, they broke their ankle just jumping off a building that they didn't really need to. Right. Um, but then it was at that time, like, hey, all right, let's load up, let's get on, our, get some kid on, still in board shorts and flip flops and yeah, shirtless, but kid on, definitely gun, and let's go hit the fence. Um, and it's then, a good look, man. Yeah, it's exactly. A good look. And then that's when I was like, I, I've made it, this is it, you know, this is where or this is what I wanted, you know. Um, and so 64s or, or Apache gunships taken off, um, or Apache helicopters taken off and shooting Hellfire missiles and not realizing, dang, those things are allowed. And, uh, and then you got Kiowas flying around doing gun runs and things like that. And so it was really exciting. And then they started saying, hey, the, the, these groups are moving over to our side of the compound. So were they? did they breach the compound itself? They tried to. And then they, so there's 16 of them. It was a V-bed. Hit the, hit the, um, what's a V bit a uh, vehicle born IED, Um, so drove a van into the, into the wall, blew up. Um, and then they tried to assault, um, the, the compound and then they ended up just getting shot and, and pretty much destroyed. Then they tried to maneuver around to our side. Um, but then the aircrafts kind of took care of them. Um, so we were just standing ready, getting ready to, to blast them up. So that was day three. Yeah. That was So welcome to Afghanistan. Yep. Yep. Nice. And then, how
0: was the rest of deployment? We'll talk about your so that was you guys are hanging out, getting some sun, relaxing. What was the first actual radio call you got when you and your team got put into action? When they called, and needed your specific services
1: um, to ex like a real execution of services. Like we had a couple calls, but there were more mostly like hard landings, um, hoisting up you know patients in different areas. Um, Actually, recoveries of, of bodies, things like that. Um, but really, when I actually moved to a rescue squadron, this is in combat, um, when I moved to a, a rescue squadron in 2012 was really when we, when I was executing my job um, as a PJ and, and getting getting calls like that. Where were you guys at in 2012? Um, so I was stationed at Bagram, where we were set at Bagram Air Base, and we would pre pel into different areas throughout northern eastern and eastern Afghanistan. So spent a lot of time up in the Konar and at Fob Joyce, J Bad, um yeah, those those
0: areas. And then you had mentioned obviously we were talking offline a little bit, Sangin was busy when you guys were there,
1: Sangin yeah. the Valley. So that was a f- another deployment after that. Um so i was down at Camp Bashin for another five months. Um and so Sangin, yeah, was was very hot in two thousand thirteen. When so you had mentioned you prepo. Yep. Well, are you
0: staging on a forward base or are you just picking kind of a friendly piece of dirt that is
1: closer to where the expected battle is? Right. So there'd be some, uh, some requests from whatever agency that we might support, whether it's a task force um, specific task force or um, some other group that's, you know, got a higher threat. For example, movement we, we staged. They're closing down fob which is Northeast, Portion of Afghanistan and they're moving everything to FOB Joyce and then back and then continuing down to, to Jalalabad, so we would stage over there um, and track their movement in case anything happened. We're staged a lot closer and and easier to react or quick quicker to react, um, and that happened quite often. and made it um, that was more volatile. You know, we would get more more rescues, more fights sure. um, that way. So um, had some had some pretty interesting ones. Um, How did the- your first your first kinetic hot
0: LZ Kazovac go? How was that first experience for you?
1: Um, man, I don't even remember it, but <laughs> I guess I would say the the first one I really remember um, is getting off of, we're flying in, and oftentimes we're, we're just getting shot at as we're, as we're flying into so whatever whatever LZ. Um, and so in training, a lot of guys lean out the, the door of the helicopter, and you're leaning out to look to see where you're, where you're headed you're looking for the smoke you're looking for the HLZ making sure they are where they say they are um and that's in training but in real life if you're leaning out you're exposing yourself to get blasted and so several times um I have to take younger guys and pull them inside and say hey man like we don't lean out out here you're you're going to get shot and so you know several times we did that and pulled them back in and it rounded hit the you know the, the aircraft behind the door or um, in the ox tank, or if we had if we had ox tanks in there, um, if not, it's or an auxiliary tank that's filled with gas, but it's Kevlar lined. Um, so we you see those bullets impact. I was like, hey, that's that's why we don't hang out. Um, <laughs> yeah, but we landed, picked up this guy, um, and then um, got back into the helo and told hey, you know I've only carried a five five six rifle um, on the sides of the helos. We got fifty cal machine guns and. Saw a dude in the in the wood line there and told our FE, like, hey, the, field, the flight engineer who was also a gunner, like, hey, there's a dude over there in that wood line. And this was this guy's first mission, first deployment ever. And that, that dude in the wood line came out with a gun, and he just obliterated that dude, you know, vaporized him. <laughs> and so I was like, nice job, dude. Great work. First kill. And uh, my man was shaking like, yeah. uh, like a leaf. I, I doubt he remembers that at, at all. Um, so I'd say that was like the first, um, I would say that was the first one I remember. Gotcha. You know, I have some significant memory loss from, from everything. Yeah. I can't remember all of them. No, no worries, man. And, but you had,
0: how much information do you know about the situation you're flying into before you actually launch? So you had mentioned the, the, the nine line comes through. mm -hmm. So what information are you walking with and prepped with before you go?
1: Very minimal so our goal was to be off the ground in by in eight minutes from from the notification to on, on the way out so we would get a, a call or a nine line it would come to us um, you know however med ops would like to, to dish it out by region come to us look at a what the mechanism of injury is what the injury is um, signs and symptoms and treatments and then how many how many people it was. Uh, what's their, what are they coalition forces or friendly forces? Um, are they litter bound? Are they ambulatory? Those are the things I'm looking for. And so typically, you know, I would, it's five minutes. So I'm getting dressed. So we're on alert. We're on a, on call. We have a radio. And so, you know, we could be working out and then they would say, you know, scramble call team leaders and troop commanders or team commanders would go to the talk or go to the rescue operations command center. And then the rest of the team would go into the aircraft and start putting their kit on my kit was in the, the talk, um, and I'm getting dressed with all my pants, my my kit, everything. Put getting my gun on as I'm reading information. I'm getting a, a, a grid. I'm getting imagery, and I'm getting patient information. And then I would have Intel print out a piece of a sheet, a piece of paper that has everything. Um, I would talk to the pilots and say, Hey, this this time I want the I want this patient going on trail. I want this patient going on lead. And then we're gonna fly them to this hospital. <laughs> Um, and so I mentally prepare myself, you know, if, if we're looking at a patient that's got, um, or somebody that's got facial injuries, okay. Mentally prepare for a crike or, or an airway insertion, or if they've got massive hemorrhage, okay, let's, let's make sure we spike blood on the way so we can give them blood. Um, and so you can mentally prepare yourself for these things before you get there. So I get to the helicopter and my team both lead and trail the, um, uh, pieces of paper that's got the information on it. And then we can start. I can brief that the team on the way in flight. Got it. So
0: you're flying into a hot LZ. So you're getting shot at, picking up a casualty, Mm -hmm. treating him. Yep. Jeez, man. How how do you, when you know, this is going to happen, like, you know, this is your job, what you're doing. How do you mentally cage your brain before that? So what do you rehearse mentally? So that when it does actually go down, you can execute and not crumble because that amount of pressure, most people can't fathom.
1: Right. I think, you know, with the amount of training that we get, um, you, you definitely refer back to that, you know, it goes back to muscle memory and, and, and have you experienced this in training before? What I liked to do, you know, when I wasn't deployed or, or even if I was, was in the shower, I would, I would, you know, I would visualize different mission sets All right, I if I had this, what would I do? If, if an aircraft went down, how would I set it up as a team leader? And, and, and what would my team look like and what are the things I need? And so before I even get, you know, in, in imaginary land, I'm already, already have an answer for it before it even anything ever happens. And so typically in training, it's way harder. We, we make it way harder in training than we do in real life, um, real life. There's generally, you know, single systems trauma. If it's multi trauma, it's, it's probably from some blast and and it and it's the treatment's pretty straightforward. Um, like if you got a gunshot wound in the leg, you know, that's that's an easy day. Um Easy and, day, yeah. And <laughs> oh, so typically, gunshot wound to the leg, yeah. piece of cake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so in training, you know, we're giving our guys, you know, multi systems trauma, broken legs. They fell off of a cliff after getting shot, and so now they have to get. Hauled up on this cliff and treated along the way in these schedules, so it makes we in training we make it so difficult that anything that we do in real life is is a is a walk in the park. So your your training just instinctively kicks in, you are right? And so, yeah, you mentally prepare yourself um, on, in route in flight, but I'm um, uh, you're so busy at least as a team leader, you're listening to aircraft calls. I'm listening on on the um, intercom system to the aircraft and and listening to the JTAC talk on the ground. Wait, what does he have? Is it, is it a a fight that we're getting into? I trust. Usually we got an escort. I trust our, our, um, Oh, 58 Kiowas and, and Apaches to fly in and clear the area before we even get there. If we do get there, we're getting shot at. I, I never really paid it. I never thought like, I'm going to get shot today. Like I never even thought like I might get shot. Like I was just, I felt invincible. like, even though people were getting shot around me, I never believed it would, it would happen to me. So right. I would, there was just no, there was, that, never, that thought never crossed my mind. So when you're in the moment,
0: did you catch yourself connecting what was actually happening happening real time to that similar experience that you were put through in training? Like you had mentioned everything in training was so stressful that it prepared you for combat. Did you ever feel like, hey, I've been here before. This is familiar to me. I know how to do this. I can execute because I've done this under these circumstances, you know, in training.
1: Yeah. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, and I think more so being able to, to register your body, maybe not the same scenarios. Um, but I paid very close attention to my, to my heart rate, you know, making sure that I'm breathing and I'm, and I slow my heart rate down so that I can make sound decisions. Um, and then, yeah, I would say in training, Specific to mass casualties, Um, when we practice mass casualties, um, and I would reference missions or training missions that we would do to ones that happen in real life, and so I'd say, "Hey, all right, like this is what I want it to look like, and make it look exactly the same." And and the reason why we do a lot of our training is when you see an amputated, you know, somebody with a leg amputation or you know bilateral leg amps, you've already seen that in training. You know, it might be moulage and, and it might be live tissue or whatever. Um, but you already seen it, so you you don't register, it's just all right, I gotta put a tourniquet on, I gotta I gotta do this, I gotta do that. And 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 you never think about what's happening until
0: until later. Got it. You know? Uh so funny connection, not at all even on a remotely similar stress level, but the connection of uh the stuff that's ingrained in your brain and training, how long it stays there. And the funny yep. things that happened to bring it out. And this was uh, gosh, this goes back to OCS 05. We had our first inspection. And so this is, it's hysterical. Like if you were to watch it from the outside, like your first uniform inspection, your first rifle inspection, you know, the sergeant instructors just roll through the squad main. Just everybody gets just destroyed. Nobody passes. Nobody. But one of the priors in our platoon was like, yeah, hey, here's what I do to get myself ready. I play the Darth Vader soundtrack in my mind before the inspection and that preps my brain. So I'm super loud. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, this guy's a prior, so maybe I'll just do that. So, <laughs> so no kidding. Yeah. I would sit there, you know, you're online. I would play. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And I, you know, we just get murdered during the inspection, but fast forward, you know, 15 years and you're prepping for an actual mission mission. And, I would catch myself subconsciously, not even thinking about it, you know, in the brief or walking to the jet or getting your flight gear on. In my head. And I'm like, holy shit, it's been it's still in there, you know? Yeah. So geez, dude. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, it's in your brain. You just gotta it's something you just gotta dig it out. You know, the circumstances that that bring it out.
1: Yeah. I would say on my, on my missions I thought more about did I miss anything? Is there anything I missed? and then get updates along the way. Like, all right, is there, is there something I should have been doing? Is there something that I should, you know, that I should prepare for? Because sometimes you won't get what you thought, you know, you'll land and then you won't understand. Like you won't, it won't read out the same way it presented itself. As far as, you know, for example, we had a, a a kid get shot and it said it had massive hemorrhage, massive bleeding, you know, it it just sounded heinous, you know, as a civilian boy, probably eight or nine years old. Um, So we spiked blood, got everything ready and, and he had gotten shot, but it was like a very small wound in his hand. Um, So so you get a look at that, the medic on the ground, who's, what are they saying? Are they, are they doing it specifically to get them out so they can continue moving? Um, Or are they, is it true? Is it, is that what it is? So you have to, so you have to enter with a a level of, um, uh, I guess I forget the term speculation i guess like oh oh that sounds oh, good yeah that's a good scrabble
0: word probably worth like 25 <laughs> or 30 points let's go with speculation
1: yeah. yeah you got you got to enter it you know thinking that what they're saying isn't true got it yep. at least okay I, I see what you're saying so
0: were they all or were there any uh missions you got called on that weren't
1: as serious or, or anything that might be any, any that were kind of humorous so, certainly um so there's there's a couple that come to mind one in particular so one of our guys first missions We've, we flew out and, and I brief, Hey, when we land, it's going to be a left door offload. Patient's going to be straight out the door, you know, about 50 meters or hundred meters or something like that. And so we get out the door, left door. And I'm, you know, when I, I get out, I'm further towards more towards the cockpit, um, the, the, the pilot. So I can give him a thumbs up and say, Hey, we're out. And so I look back, check to see the rest of my team. And, um, there's three of us in the helo, and I only count myself and somebody else. I was like, man, where's, where's uh, OD. Where's, where's my man. <laughs> We're missing somebody. Yeah, and, and I call him up on the radio and I was like, Hey, OD, where are you? And he's like, I'm out. And, and I looked up and I looked through the door and he's laying in the prone on the other side of the aircraft and I pop into the aircraft and hit him. the I call him on the radio. Again, I was like, get, get onto this side. You're on, you're on the wrong side. You're not the wrong door. Get on the side where we are. And, this is the very first mission, and then he gets on our side. I'm like, well, "What are you doing, man? Yeah, do so, left and right, yeah, Left and, and right exactly." I was like, "Left door offload, man, not right door." Um, and so, got got him together, um, and then we start doing the mission. And then, likewise, you know, we get some silly calls, like you know, flying out and, and picking up somebody with a with a scorpion sting or like a cat scratch, and oh, or like because they have um, gastrointestinal pains, and I'm like. I am not being utilized to my full potential. Like we should be out here for, for blood and guts and things like that. I'm not picking up somebody with gas problems and, and heart and heartburn. You know, what a, what a very expensive ambulance or or ride to the hospital that, um, that this person doesn't need. Sure. Um, One of my other ones, we would also pick up dogs. We're working military working dogs. And so this one had fallen down a well and we went and picked it up and rescued it and got it into the helo and one of my guys is a big dog lover and so my my man he had been you know criking patients and you know doing a putting tourniquets on bleeders and, and multiple systems trauma amputations and he is you know he was getting after it and then i closed the doors with this dog and take my helmet off start getting comfortable so i can do some good quality treatment and I turn back around and he's laying down with the dog, laying and petting him. And I look at him and I go, and we used to call him Cat. And hey, Cat, what are you doing? And he's like, "It's the dog, man. It's, it's the dog. Like I'm just laying with it. I'm like, <laughs> petting. It's not gonna save its life. Like let's do some medicine, let's slap him in the head, and hey, let's start doing some medicine here. And that dog ended up having you know a, a broken leg, a la- lacerated liver, a pneumothorax." also think of broken back and falling down like a 60 foot well. And um, so it was a really bad off. And so we were able to get, get some lines on it and, and do some, just do some medical treatment and ended up saving it, nice. which is pretty su- surprising. Nice. I thought the thing was toast, but um, that that was always entertaining to see guys, different reactions and, you know, particular dudes, first missions. Um, they would, especially like a bloody one where it's an amputation they would get, we would get them on the helo and it's a guy's first mission. And he would just sit there and stare at the, at the amputation, stare at the bone sticking out or the meat or whatever. And then I'd let them take it in and then finally like slap them in the head and say, okay, you took it in, let's get to work. Let's, let's do some work here. Cause, cause that's different, you know, like you see it in training and then now it's like, well, oh, that's what it is in real life. And it's a very particular smell to it and, um, feeling behind it, you know, so, to so trying to snap them into gear. And then once that happens, then then it's routine after that.
0: Got it. So was there a a scorpion bite? Uh, Is there any fun had with the guys that get kasevac for a scorpion bite? I feel like they Uh were... I might, you know, have a sarcastic comment or two for for that guy.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, they they may not get a coin. Like, we would typically hand out, like, a, a poker chip coin. Sure. To people that says, like, saved by... Pedro, was saved by, you know, saved by PJs kind of thing. They may not get that, you know. Like, I would get it if they were if they were legitimately dying from this allergic reaction or something like that, from a scorpion sting or or gastrointestinal pain. Um, but you know, it was just like, hey man, you just ruined my Game of Thrones marathon. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> i was i was on season six bro you ruined yeah, it for me yeah man. we were
1: deep in the heart of the <laughs> dude, of the red wedding and oh man <laughs> that's
0: awesome the red wedding oh game of thrones plug yeah yeah dude i'd be pissed yeah if i'm knee deep in game of thrones and some dude's got a scorpion bite yeah oh man and still are you airborne in eight minutes for a scorpion bite bro
1: um no that one would would not be so much as a, sc- a scramble that would be and again, again, it, it depends on what the medic on the ground puts, you know, and so that's why I say you can't trust everything they say. And they, they might say this person's going downhill and they're a cat alpha and they need immediate evac that would constitute us getting off the ground extremely fast. And then you get there and you're like, man, we just got had. Oh, dude.
0: But, oh man, ruining Game of Thrones marathon, that. That was something we look forward to. Yeah, man. Or my workout, you know, yeah. deep, in, deep in the heart of a workout. You, you get the, get the, call. oh, at Scorpion. But yeah, we'll be there. And I, I got six more yeah, sets. It's, it's sometimes yeah. they'll
1: be like, ah, it'll be an hour. Tell them we'll be there in an hour. Yeah. We'll pick them up. <laughs> Good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Ruined game of throws marathon. So dude, you eventually, I mean, you did 16 years uh, as a PJ and eventually it came time to, uh, there was a decision you had to make to, to stay
1: or get out. Yeah. Not an easy decision. No, no, but I think my, my hand was forced in this in this uh, instance. Um, what, what was the, what were the factors that led to your decision to eventually get out? Um, s- several. So when I when I left the rescue squadron, the, the 58th rescue squadron in, in Vegas, um, there's the unit that I referenced earlier, the 24th STS and and that's our, our tier one organization. Um, both Army and the Navy have have both those. Um, and we support those, you know, um, at the, at the 24th. And so that's a whole selection process, you know, after being in a job for a while, you got to go through it in a selection process and a whole nother training, um, process, so, um, t- to make sure you you do have the ingredients to actually support those entities. And I was never intending to go there, but after that deployment that, I, that we referenced going out and staying in a bunch, um, those deployments were dissipating quickly and I was still, I was at the height of my career. I felt like, like I was performing really well. I still had fight in me. And so I was like, man, I guess, I guess I'll go to this unit, you know, I guess I'll apply there. And so applied and got set up for a selection date. And the selection date um, was a day after I was getting back from Afghanistan. And so I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. And, and I also wasn't sure what my family would think about that. So from Afghanistan, I told her, told my wife, like, hey, I'm going to go to selection for the 24th, but it's also on this day. And so I landed in Vegas from Afghanistan, um, packed my bags to go to North Carolina, pretty much high-fived my wife, and then got on a plane, and then flew out to here to do another two-week, two-and-a-half-week selection. <clears throat> um, so came out and did that, and then got picked up, um, fortunately. And then did the whole green team thing and, and, and finished that, got selected for a team and then spent the rest of my career there. So, so did another seven deployments, um, with, with this organization. Nice. And then I would say in 2019, so I'm about 14 years in, um, with, with nine deployments at that time, I would, I started to really notice some significant memory loss. And so throughout a lot of those deployments, we were taking a lot of IDF, a lot of, um, indirect fire rockets coming in and and several of those landed pretty close. And so I had a lot of close calls with those and and I got lucky a lot of times, um, both in the experience of my career and, um, that I didn't die. And so I thought my memory loss was from TBIs. So I, at our unit, traumatic
0: brain injury. Yep.
1: Gotcha. And so at our unit, we have a, a very big, robust human performance staff. So you have, nutrition specialists, you have strength conditioning coaches, physical therapists, and psychologists. And they're all working together to help us perform and operate at a high level. So I went to our neuropsychologist and and one of our operational psychologists. And I asked for, hey, why is my memory loss so significant? There's people that I have known, I recognize them I've known them for a really long time, but I don't remember their names. I, I, no shit. Yeah, I was like, I don't know. Like I just recognize them. But, and I would see them all. like either at like Walmart or even at work. And I'm like, yeah, I just don't remember his name. And even though I, he's on my team, like things I just that I should know. So we took a cognitive test and then they're like, yeah, you're pretty superior in everything except for one section. That's attentiveness. Like your attentiveness is actually average. Um, and that's, sign or an indicator of PTSD. Now, when I heard that, I was like, but I'm not like what you see in the movies. I'm not like what you see in TV of, as far as like having moments of breakdowns, waking up in the middle of the night, like grabbing, you know, my wife or or grabbing like, you know, a gun or something like that, or having these meltdowns. That that was not me. And so I was like, "Mm, I don't have that. And so saw a therapist anyway, um, to try to work through and understand some of these things, and working with her, she said, you know, we identified some symptoms that I did have and um, significant, which is the more broader the population. And, and most of us have a moderate PTSD rather than a, a severe PTSD. And so depression, anxiety, sleep disorders. I had sleep apnea that I found out, um, you know, in my mid, mid to early 30s as a healthy guy. Um, Yeah. My anxiety distance from my family. I stopped enjoying my job. Didn't enjoy what I was doing. Um, Angry outbursts at times and irritability. My irritability was through the roof. Um, And so we'd also do blood tests and my, my cortisol levels were, were super high um, indicating a lot of stress. So we started working through those. And so that was about May of 2019. And, and I started to enjoy my job again. I was a team leader of a group of, of very talented individuals, set up a climbing trip um, to go to Boise, Idaho. Um, we're going to do some lead climbing. We're going to do some mountain rescue um, operations out there. And most of our guys are coming back from deployment. When we deploy, we spread out to to different areas, working with different groups. And then we come back together. And so I don't really see my entire team for an entire four and five months. Um, and so when we get back, I wanted to build a morale trip, get us back to feeling good together, um, and then getting ready for our next cycle, which is the alert cycle. And so this is in October, flew out to Boise, did some really good climbing um, and some mountain rescue techniques for a couple days. On our final climb of one of the days, was a 70-foot pitch. One of our guys led up. There's five of us up there. Um, I was going to be the last one up. So four of them got up, and then they started setting up a rappel line adjacent to the climbing line. And one of the guys was you know, trying to get over the edge. Um, and so I saw him having a little bit of difficulty, and I'm yelling up at, at uh, this individual, like, hey, teach him how to smear over the edge. Um, it'll be nice and smooth. The rope is through some bolted chains and the guy or the other PJ up top was like, Hey, like I'm just going to move the the rope back here and put it, you know, put an anchor into some rock, some artificial anchor. And, you know, him and I had a little back and forth and he's set it back up anyway. Um, which he's right. It would make it more comfortable for the uh, individual that was going down because he typically had never climbed and it's not something he typically does. So make it comfortable for him. So he started his rappel. I started my climb. Um, he got down and got down safely. And so I was like, okay, well, I mean, it was, it was a safer option or, or a more comfortable option. Um, that rope is good because somebody just went down it. So I got to the top and started instructing one of the newer PJs on how I like to build anchors. Um, and then our second guy started going down. And so when he got about halfway down, the there was an explosion behind me or like it sounded like a gunshot. And so I saw a rope sliding on the ground um, and the anchor or the rock that the anchor was in failed. The rock exploded around the anchor. And so the dude who was on the rope fell about 30 feet bouncing and hitting rocks on the way down. Um, But one of our other guys, the one that moved the anchor back, he was tied into that other end. He was tied into the anchor. So the weight of the one that fell Pulled the other one off the very top. Um, and so he was trying to hold himself up. I got dragged across the ground and ultimately fell that 70 feet. And I watched him slide off, and my brain couldn't comprehend what was happening. You know, like I was actually in the middle of telling a joke. And so I was laughing. And then I turned around and saw him flying off the edge and then flip over because I thought he was anticipating It looked like he was trying to reach the slope of the ground so that he would hit and it would more absorb his impact and he would kind of roll down. So it wouldn't be as flat, you know, a director's a blunt as an impact, but he didn't get enough distance and he flipped over and landed right on his back on top of a stone um, and then bounced over to his face. And so I was a team leader. Um, I'd been in the longest out of those guys. I had, you know, more deployments than all them. Um, and, and I, you know, a lot more experience, at least experience with, dealing with casualties and teammates um, being injured. So the guy that I was teaching, he was very close to that um, individual that fell. Um, and so I had to calm him down a little bit, give him instruction on what we were, what was going to happen next. Um, yelled down to one of our guys down at the bottom. He was a controller and said, hey, I need you to check for a pulse and listen for breathing. Do not do not move him. Do not roll him. Let me get down and I'll do it again, or I'll do it. Um so he's like, yeah, I got a pulse. He's breathing. And so I rappelled down and he said he lost the pulse and he wasn't breathing. So I got to him, felt and listened. Um, no pulse, wasn't breathing. Got the other controller over there to help roll over, roll him over. As I rolled him over, I could feel that he had a broken neck. Um, I could see he had a compound fracture in his right arm. Um, and he had some really gnarly gash on his face. <clears throat> um and so I looked, listened, felt again, still nothing. So had one of the controllers start CPR. Um, by this time, the other PJ got down, told him to get the med kit to bring over to me. Had one of the other controllers call up 911. Um, and so my now my priority became, okay, basic life support, which is CPR. Let's get an airway in him, try to intubate him. <clears throat> he had blood and teeth um, and a bunch of dirt in his mouth so was Really hard to see and visualize cords to to insert that that tube, um, and I also couldn't manipulate his neck because he had a broken neck. I couldn't manipulate his head too much, and I don't want to cause cause more damage. So tried two innovations, could not confirm 100 percent that it was in his trachea. I couldn't confirm it went down the tube right.
0: Quick question, yeah, and don't mean to interrupt. The first guy fell 30 feet. He was halfway down. The anchor gave way, he fell 30 feet, bounced off some rocks. Mm-hmm. As a result, pulled the second guy the full 70 feet.
1: Yep. How was the first guy? He was he was banged up, so he actually hurt his shoulder, and he didn't realize that until a little while later. Okay, so but he's he, he's stable. He he's, is you're not yeah.
0: all of the aid you're giving is to guy number two. Yep. Okay, all right, man.
1: Continue. Just yep. want to
0: yep. clarify a bit.
1: Yep. And so as I, I could not confirm 100% that that tube was in his trachea. So, and I, and I had to do right. I had to make sure 100% it was there um, because I, you know, it's, this is my boy. This is my, my teammate. Um, and so I opted for a surgical cri- um, cric, Um And so that was, you know, taking a scalpel, cutting a hole in his neck um, into his cricothyroid membrane and inserting a tube um, through there so that we could breathe for him and so did that um, it went smoothly um, and then the other PJ did a field thoracotomy and that's essentially a chest tube without the tube. Um, and so we did, a, he did on the left side, rolled him over and about, I would say about a liter of blood came out of, the, of that, of his chest cavity there. And so it was just, you know, spilled out like you just took a, a you know, a gallon of milk and just poured it out. Um, and so, Told him to seal that back up with a chest seal. Um, we continued CPR, and I'm talking to Life Flight, or not Life Flight, the dispatch, and asking for Life Flight. And I'm a paramedic, <clears throat> nationally registered paramedic, so is um, the one that did the um, chest tube or the finger thoracotomy. And I'm trying to explain to her, hey, I'm a paramedic. I know what we're currently doing CPR. He's in cardiac arrest. I need Life Flight here. And she couldn't give authority to launch. And so we're, you know, to give you a... a what the or an idea of what it looked like is the road was about 400 meters away from us but we had about you know a significant elevation change from there um, to get him down so to put him in a litter and bring him down there um, was going to take some time probably about 20 to 30 minutes um, and we didn't have that kind of time to stop CPR and bring him down there So what I was asking for is if the life flight had a hoist system and we had a a litter that was capable to be hoisted out. And ultimately the fire department got there, got up to us and this had been about 25 minutes of us treating. And I asked them, Hey, does life flight have a hoist? And they said, no. And and it was at that moment that I knew for sure he wasn't going to come back that because of the time we were doing CPR and the time it was going to take to get him down to the street so that a helicopter could land and load him on there was going to be too great of a, of a stoppage of CPR. Um, so they put the pads on. I told the rest of the team to go st- stand away. Cause I knew what was about to come, um, which is confirmation of that he was you know, in a Sicily and that he was dead. And so they put the pads on and, and as I breathed for him, I, that was the, the two minutes that I gave to myself of, all right, of what happened because I knew what was going to happen, what was about to happen, an investigation. Um, And I thought, you know, what everything was going to look like. Um, The memorial, the funeral, the notification process, us coming back from Idaho to the, to North Carolina, to the team room, uh, the questions that were going to come, everything played through my head of what was to come. Um, And so it was really overwhelming. And so, they pronounced him dead, put a blanket over him, and then they put him in a body bag um, and then brought him down to the bottom. And tradition, traditionally, we put a flag on the body bag. Um, and so that's what I've done several times in my past, both with Coalition and Friendly folks and, and Americans. <clears throat> and so we put this one on, and this one was very different. <clears throat> Lost a lot of teammates throughout my career. Placed a lot of American flags on, on body bags. But this one was in training, and this one was... Um, Devastating. We were talking about beers, where we're gonna go have drinks that night, where we're gonna to go to dinner. Um, the the Peter, he's the one that passed. He his wife was pregnant at the time. Um, he had a two year old child. So I had called up my boss and, and said, you know, this is the last flag I will pin on a teammate for the rest of my career. I will never do this again. This this, this was the straw that that broke me. Um, and so. I pulled myself off a team as a team leader. We flew back to North Carolina um, investigation, accident investigation takes place um, naturally. <clears throat> and I realize I, I leaned back on those resources that I described earlier, the psych psych doc specifically. Um, and I, now I have a lot of guilt, a lot of blame, you know, a lot of what ifs, what if I'd done this? What if we had done this? You know, and I, you know, I, that was the last climb of the day, and and I actually didn't want to do another climb. I was actually gonna, we were wrapping up the climb before on a route, and I we turned around the corner, and I was gonna say, hey, let's pack it up, boys. Like we, we climbed enough today, let's let's head back. Um, but he was already climbing, so I was like, all right, let's let's continue the climb. So, you know, I wished I had said, hey, let's let's call it. You know, Josh, come back down. We're gonna we're gonna call it a day. You know, there's so many things that that went through my head of what ifs. And so we had spent a lot of time dealing with that guilt. Um, the nightmares. now I can't sleep. Now I have a specific dream that I'm thinking about. I'm depressed, distant from my family. Um, don't want to do anything. And spent two months, uh, almost every single day, talking to the psych doc. And she was able to bring me back to um, functioning as, as a high-level team leader. The team wanted me back. I wanted to be back as a team leader. Um, and so I was ready. And I'll also say that like, you know, she, she, you know, in a way saved my life and, you know, f- literally and, and figuratively. Um, and so came back as a team leader and within 36 hours of coming back, we blew out on a short notice deployment. So notified at 8am on our way to, a, a you know, an AO or a undisclosed, undisclosed location by noon. So within four hours we're, we're gone. Um, get there, we there for two and a half months, pretty successful deployment, some some moments of excitement, um, but nothing too crazy, um, but led my entire team out there. In fact, my entire troop um, Air Force troop went out there. So 16 Air Force dudes along with an army contingent, um, a lot of guys out there. And so very successful, came back feeling confident, feeling ready, like, OK, confirmed I'm back started getting ready for our next deployment, which was going to be in May, our actual deployment. <clears throat> so this is in February March. <clears throat> and in April, the accident investigation close out. It closes out and they find, you know, in the accident, in the investigation, safety and accident one, that there's nothing that we could have done to prevent it, <clears throat> that it was an accident. And there's nothing we could have done to save his life. Had he landed on an operating table, it would have still been the same outcome. Um, But the, the military had to hold somebody accountable. And because I was a team leader out there, I was held accountable. Um, And so with that, I was removed from my position as team leader. Um, And I was removed from this unit that I'd worked so hard to to be at. Um, So I was told I had to leave the unit. Um, And I was told I was going to leave the unit as soon as possible. That meant 30 days. So now this was six months from the accident, from when the accident happened. And I'd spent that six months convincing myself it wasn't my fault. And now I had a sheet of paper saying this is my fault. I could take this to my psychologist and say, look, see, I told you it was my fault. It is my fault. It says it right here. I just got fired for it. Um, and she was not thrilled about it. She wasn't notified that that was going to take place. Um, and now I'm back in depression, back into blame, back into guilt, not wanting. Now I definitely don't want to do my job anymore. Um, I feel like there's, everybody's staring at me. Everyone's looking at me, blaming me. I have this, you know, I don't want to go into work. I don't want to be seen by anybody at work, I'm embarrassed. Um, and, and none of that was taking place, you know, but it was all in my head because everybody supported me. Everybody knew what happened. Um, but still, it, it didn't take away the feeling that I had. And so the place I was going to go to was back to Las Vegas, um, the, where I was given orders to. And if I'd done that, I, I looked at the process or, or, or the future outcome of that. And in the condition I was in, I would have had access to gambling and alcohol, um, and I probably would have, you know, gone down some of those paths because they didn't have the resources we have here. At least to the extent they didn't have a psychologist embedded in their squadron, they didn't have um, continuity of care. It wouldn't have. They would have had no context of what I just went through. I'd have showed up at this unit as somebody who had just gotten fired from a a tier one organization. So a stigma already, already written upon me. um, And that just wasn't for me. So the only option to continue getting the care at the unit that I'm at was to medically retire to get out. Um, So I chose to push them a medical retirement button for PTSD so that I could continue getting treated and seen by the psych doc um, that I was seeing and and use the resources there, the, the strength condition coaches, the, physical therapists and the nutrition coaches and, and work out myself, building myself back up. And so um, that ultimately led to me, me getting out. And so that was about a year long process of me getting out, doing therapy, overcoming a lot of these challenges. Um, and then ultimately what led to me, what, what I am trying to do for second life.
0: Okay. Dude, that's a, that's a hell of an experience, man. And some significant self-awareness to know that in your current mental state Las Vegas is not the best place. I mean that's that's significant the fact that you were aware of where you were mentally and that yeah. given the options available uh, in that town what yeah that probably would have went south.
1: Um, right. Yeah.
0: Oh man. Well I think that's a it's a great tying into the second half of this and really the kind of the meat and potatoes man. Um that was the kind of the, the the circumstances that led to you getting out. But it's also the circumstances that led to what you're doing now and what you're trying to do now. Mm-hmm. Because would you still be doing what you're doing now? And we'll talk about this in a minute. Had you not experienced
1: that loss? No, definitely not. I would have been <clears throat> still in the teams. Uh, I would have taken my career to 20. Um, I would have been, you know just continuing doing life as normal and even so it, had it been somebody else, had it been another team team leader at the squadron to Matt, I, I don't think that they would have um, done this done what I'm doing now either. I don't I don't think this what what we're trying to build would not be happening um, had things not gone the way they did, they have and so as I look back, everything just was coincidentally happening and, and very unfortunate experiences. Um, But offering me the opportunity to help a lot of a lot of people. And it's it's been a that's a driving
0: force. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's your well, let's get into it right now, man. I mean, let's uh, this is the best at the perfect time to get into it. Shields and stripes.
1: Mm -hmm. That is your new mission. What is it? So as I look back at the resources that I had available to me um, and as I started transitioning out, I realized man, like I'm going to lose all these resources. I'm going to lose this strength coach. I'm going to lose the, the nutritionist. I'm going to lose the physical therapist, a the psychologist, like all those in, in all encompassing in one spot. Those are going to go away and I'm going to be stuck to this VA system. Likewise, I was also, you know, in this time period that I had fired, this is in mid 2020 and I'm looking at the news and I'm seeing on the media, um, you know, regardless of what anybody believes, you know, uh, law enforcement's really getting hit really hard by the media and I looked at them in, in these videos, and I saw myself, or at least my old self, in them. You know, being high stress, being in the red constantly, making quick decisions to try to save their life, um, over maybe perhaps overreacting in some of those decisions, um, irritable, um, and, and you know, just living that high stress lifestyle. And, and I saw them, and I'm like, man, like, I wonder what kind of resources they have. And so I did some research and I looked it up and there's some resources out there available. um, But certainly not to the extent that I had available to me. And, and I personally believe that they needed it more than I did. Um, They needed because they're every day in their war zone. Like my combat zone is overseas and their combat zone is outside their door. Like they live inside their combat zone. They wake up and they go to work into the same combat zone that they live in. You know, it's, it's a wild thought, you know, in my, I grew up, my, my dad has spent 30 years in law enforcement. And so I I know now I understand more of why he was the way he was. <clears throat> and so that, that helped me lead into why I'm, I want to do this even more so. Um, and so creating a place that has those resources available in a four week program that these participants can show up. These demographics of law enforcement, firefighters, EMS responders, and and uh, veterans specific non soft veterans because I think there's a you know all veterans as, as a whole, but I think soft veterans get a little bit more taken care of when they get out than than regular veterans or, or non soft veterans. So having this in a four week program, they show up. They get a strength conditioning program. They get a nutrition program. They get f- uh, physical therapy. And then they get psych therapy, Um, and so throughout that four weeks, you have in-person treatment. And then when they leave there, they get another 12 weeks of virtual therapy, um, both in the mental realm, and then we're looking at a physical platform, a physical fitness platform to do a virtual space. Dude, that is, it's cool. And I've got the website up here,
0: and I want to just, you know, we talk about it, but I want people to actually hear it, and I'm just going to read it. So, this is building your armor, returning to life. Shields and Stripes is a no-fail mission. We will return our heroes better prepared to navigate the challenges of life and family and return them to feeling like themselves again. Our shield represents the source of our protection, not only for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters who stand beside us. Our stripes are our battle scars, both visible and invisible. The shield and stripes represents our union as law enforcement first responders and veterans and our dedication to ensuing, ensuring our heroes outlive and overcome their own battles and learn to live meaningful, happy lives. So that is the why. Yeah. It's freaking bad, man. And this type of the, the various avenues of treatment that are offered. Is there anything else that exists that you know of that offers such a multi-dimensional role of attacking the stressors that come with, Combat experience,
1: PTSD, losing friends, things like that. I would say um, there's there's a couple out there. at least there's a couple that, that are out there and and they're doing great things. Um, not specific to to kind of what we're doing. Um, I would say there's a, a place up in Virginia Beach um, that, that's the closest, and they're they are servicing veteran specific and soft veteran specific. Um, VHP, I think is its name. Um, but there's a couple others that that do mostly retreats. Um, and they do, um, you know, like a, a one week workshop show up, we'll teach you some educate you in some ways to, of health and wellness to better take care of yourself or here's, you know, some money to, that will pay for, you know, 10 sessions of therapy, things like that. Um, but, but I spoke to several organizations, you know, and fire battalion chiefs of fire stations. And, they, and then I asked them, like, hey, have you sent anybody to these places? And they're like, yeah, we sent this guy here and and this guy here. And they went out for two weeks. And I was like, how was it? And they're like, it was a blast. They, they said it was awesome, it was perfect. I was like, what happened afterwards? Well, what, what was their outcome afterwards? Well, I, well, then they came back, and then, like, you know, two to three weeks later, they tried to kill themselves. And so that's not working. You know, that that just isn't hitting the mark. And I think the retreats are great and the and – going out and doing peer support programs and, and therapy programs are great and they're definitely, they're vastly needed. Um, but but I don't think they're long enough. I don't think it it hits the mark on a whole body concept. And, you know, the four weeks is a lot to ask, especially of, of, you know, a a civilian responder or, or a public servant, um, to take either time off or time away from their family. It's a lot to ask, um, specifically to somebody that's not used to taking that time away. Um, but man, it's worth it. It's that four weeks will change, can change somebody's, you know, how they carry themselves, what the, their thought processes are, um, and and their daily habits, um, and that'll change them. And then when they leave our program, that that twelve weeks of follow up and making sure they're they're continuing the, the things that they they learned, and then bringing in the family. And so you know, if they do have a family, if they have a significant other that we pull them in because it's just as important. Um, to to pull them in as as it is themselves to get that that treatment. So that the family understands exactly what they're going through and and the stressors and why they are distant, why they are um, experiencing the things that they're experiencing. Um, And so, yeah, to answer your question, I I didn't see anything that's doing or does exactly what we are proposing to do.
0: Because this is high-level
1: professional.
0: I mean, this is what professional athletes get.
1: Certainly. Yeah. yeah. At least the, the physical training and, and, and stuff like that. And yeah. and I would say even the mental performance aspect. Yeah. Sports um,
0: psychology, things like that. I mean, yeah. those are, they attack in injury from multiple different angles. And, right. you know, so what have you seen and when did you guys get started initially? So
1: June, right? April was when I first started the entity. Okay. And so when I was transitioning out or getting out, I, I knew the space I wanted to be in in the health wellness fitness industry um and i was kicking around like hey i want i want this gym but i want it to be like what we have here at the unit or what the preservation of the force and family of the potiff program is to the military i want it to be like that but i don't know how to do it so i'm gonna get some education on it i'm gonna i want to you know figure it out and so you know like coincidentally one of the guys that was going through our green team at the time i hadn't spoke to in a very long time and he, i happened to pass him and in the gym and I was on my way to, to an appointment. So I didn't have much time to talk, but I told him a little bit about what I wanted to do after the accident. And his, his best friend or one of his, you know, what he calls his brother um, was the former vice president at Exos um, and, or at least senior vice president of the sales enterprise. What's Exos? Exos is a uh, performance facility or sports performance facility uh, typically known for pro athletes and typically known for NFL combine preparation and now they're they're entering the corporate space as far as health and wellness. Um, they're They're definitely a giant in the health and wellness space. Um, not very well known to the civilian lay person, but uh, very well known in the in the pro athlete um, and and socom athlete industry. okay. Um, and so that individual that's that former vice president and senior vice president, was staying with him the night that that I told him about what I wanted oh, to do. Oh, I see. Good timing. And he was only there that one night, and so he told him about what I was doing or what I wanted to do. That vice president then asked and offered me to shadow him um, as an internship. So I pursued that um, and got a lot of lessons learned um, through that internship. Um, and And towards the end of it, I said, you know, hey, is this is this going to turn out in a job? Because my plan was a three-year plan to really start this performance center and to and get everything lined up. I wanted some education. I wanted, you know, a degree, or one of these things. And I had a different plan in mind, but I also needed to pay myself. And so I was like, hey, is this going to turn into a job? And, then, and he he didn't necessarily say no, but he essentially said no. And he's like, no, it's not, not really. What you need to start focusing on is, executing and doing what you say you're going to do. Stop talking about it and be about it. And and that was the sink or swim moment of like, okay, well, how do I do that? How do I even start it? I don't know how to start an entity. And he's like, well, you go to this place. And so I actually went on to LegalZoom and started an LLC. Nice. And then I realized that's not what I wanted to start. Ate some money there um, and then s- applied for a 501c3. Um, and I didn't even know what I wanted to call it. And so I was kicking these different ideas back and forth. And then it just came to me on a drive one day to Raleigh and I was like, I'll call it shields and stripes. Um, and there is an, another underlying, uh, tone behind shields and stripes. And we, you stated what it is on, on the website, but for those that are faith, um, based, the shield would be the armor of God and the shield of faith and the stripes would be an a, a verse in Isaiah about, you know, by his stripes, we are healed. Um, and so essentially saying in referencing like by, with my wounds, I am healing other people of the similar, similar wounds. And so I found that to be very powerful. Uh, the former vice president, he, he kind of led me on to, the, to some of those, um, verses as I wasn't a significant man of faith. And, and as I come more closer, um, learning a lot more, I liked that. Um, and so came up with that shields and stripes name. And I started looking up different people who is doing this, who is who's in this space right now. And I actually called up a lot of nonprofits, asking what their startup was like, and and what were their what were their difficult, what were their barriers. And it was very disheartening talking to these nonprofits that supposedly service veterans, as I'm entering the veteran space, asking for help, and they're telling me, "Hey, you should probably not do this. Like, this is going to be really hard." maybe just quit. In fact, why don't you just do this instead of that? Why don't you actually just come work for me? And, and, uh, I was like, man, I don't think you understand. Like I've been through several selection courses. I've also been told, as I was stated earlier in this podcast is I've been told I wasn't going to make it several times by a lot of people. And And I never quit before. I'm not going to quit now. I'm only going to find a different path. And so instead of calling these people anymore, I just decided, let's, just start this entity up. Yeah, I do the 501c3 and then I contacted um, an organization called 5x5 Performance Therapy. And that happened um, to be now, she's my co-founder, Jennifer Byrne. And so she ran that business and, and her mission set was the same as what mine is or what I vision. And she was a very individual basis, occupational therapist by trade Um spent years as a in the Air Force as an occupational therapist, got out. Um she married a crow, a combat rescue officer, which is in my career field as well. So, you know, as an combat rescue officer is a is an officer version of a PJ. Just they don't do the medicine, um, or any of the combat stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Officers uh, just yeah, skating the, by the, the, Yeah. The, they got their pen and papers and keyboards. <laughs> um but so met, it just started talking to her and we came up and, and she was more so like, Hey, this is what you should think about. And she was more of a mentor or like a, an advisor in the beginning. And I was like, Hey, like, I need you to not be an advisor. I need you to jump in the waters with me. I need a partner in this. Like I need, I need your help be involved as much as I am. Um, and so we sc- collaborated efforts and then started building the team um, and, and I don't know anything about business and I started learning a lot of things like got a lawyer and he's like, all right, send me your bylaws. Okay. Wh- what are bylaws? <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, oh, it's, it governs your board. It's, yeah. it's what governs your board. Uh, what is a board? Yeah. And it's you, you're <laughs> yo, the board what is the board of the the directors. Board. And I was like, oh, so I was like, all right, so I'll figure this out. And, all right. So let's get your, your board meeting minutes. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about minutes and, and then, you know, he typed that up for me and he's like, all right, send me your articles of incorporation. Not sure what that is. And so learning all these lessons of like that, these very basic things, but I didn't know it. Like I can shoot a gun. I can put a tourniquet on. I can just fast run I can jump out of a plane, yeah. do anything else. But he told me to do some paperwork and, and figure out a business. Like I was, you know, I was lost. I was in, I was reading a different language. And so now this became my thing and then built up the team um, and, and started, essentially now I'm going to raise some money. And so like, how do I do that? You know, and then getting comfortable telling the story that I just told you and, and learning that, you know, at first I was like, who wants to hear my story? And nobody wants to, nobody wants to listen to me. Nobody wants to listen to me talk. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not special. I'm not, didn't do anything great. You know, I don't, I don't have a medal of honor. I don't have a silver star or anything like just a, a dude that did some things. And, uh, it turns out a lot of people actually wanted to hear my story. A lot of people, believe in what I'm doing and, and believe in what we're trying to do. And, and it turns out that there's a lot of good patriots and Americans out there that want to donate money to help us get it going. And so we had a our first fundraiser um, back in August, and our goal was to raise $25,000 for a pilot study we're doing actually next week. And, man, put a lot of effort and time into it, spent, spent a lot of my own personal money, um, and then at the end of that raised a total of, You know, $60,000 for us and $40,000 for somebody else. And and so it's, you know, $100,000 in total um, just by people being good, you know, good people that wanted to help others and believe in us. And so we essentially quadrupled our vision, our number. um, And so that allows us to do another one. And then really that once this starts cascading and we can get going with our full four week program and, and build it out to these different branches of uh, that, that can, you know, at least house us.
0: Dude, that is a, that's a heck of a transition. You know, you can do a kidney transplant on the fly in a (laughs) helicopter, but what are your articles of organization? That's no joke, man. I I totally hear you on that. It is another language. I think it's pretty cool, man. And you've taken essentially a tragic and terrible experience. And that is your fuel for what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. Like that's your why. Part of your why, at least. And the golf outing thing, because that was how long ago? A couple weeks ago? Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, about four weeks ago. So that was. I mean, you guys are. A, this is a young. You're a fledgling organization. Yep. There is some traction. What is something that you are trying to do as one of the co-founders? And it's you and. Uh, you want to give
1: a shout out to your your, your CCT bro, uh, Eric Ballister. So he's. <laughs> He's um, yeah, he stood up, helped stand, stand up the company. And he's got some, several other things of his small business going as well. So currently he's my treasurer and then um, running as, as, you know, multiple hats, you know, ambassador, he's building the website, he's building brochures. He's yeah. now he's going to be an, an operational director down and in, in hopefully our cohort that goes down in Phoenix. Um, and so, you know, as everybody's wearing multiple hats and, you know, it's, it's, it's mind blowing the same, you know, it may not be get like getting shot at, but I have that same drive to complete this, same drive and motivation to to make this work and, and be successful at this as I did when I became a PJ. Right. Um, and so nothing's going to stop me from, from doing this other than maybe dying. Yeah. Um, or you, I mean... CrossFit Games are for another two years, yeah, so you're exactly. good until yeah. then, right? Yeah. Right, you know, I fit time in between every train, <laughs> um, so nothing's gonna stop me. I'm not gonna quit. I'm not gonna give up. I'm, I'm gonna find different avenues. I'm, we're gonna go, um, and, and I think we have enough supporters and we have enough people to believe in us, and, and at least to give to continue to give me the confidence to to make this a nationally recognized organization, and yep. that's that's the that's the ultimate goal. So what is what <clears throat> between
0: you and Eric? Uh, what is your guy's kind of philosophy of command? You know, for, for lack of a better term, how do you, what, what is the culture you're trying to build with shields and stripes? Cause as it grows, you're going to start bringing people on. What's your kind of philosophy on that?
1: Yeah. So anybody that I bring onto the team, um, I look for a couple things very specific in them. Um, number one, are they, are they a self starter kind of thing? They, they take initiative, Um, but are they, why, why are they doing it? What, what are they there for? Are they, are they asking to be a part of this because they want to get paid because they want, because they see money because they see dollar signs or is there an underlying thing behind them that, that they, that they truly find passionate. Everybody that's on my team has either experienced and gone through some sort of tragic event. Everybody's got a story on my team. Everybody's used either the resources that uh, either used or, deliver the resources. So Jennifer, um, occupational therapist, co-founder, she's treated guys like me. Um, Eric is a guy like me. You know, my mother, one of my other guys, John Simmons, he is a guy like me, um, has experienced these you know, tragedies and gone through the program so they believe in the program. They know it works. Um, so anybody that wants to join the team, like they, they, it has to matter to them. They have to go out of their way and say, I want to be a part of this because I believe in what this organization is doing. I'm willing to jump in the waters with you. I'm willing to jump in the, in the, in the deep water with you. Um, not, Hey, let me know when it's up and running and then I'll get in the water with you. Like I, I'm building a boat inside the water. Like I don't, (laughs) I don't need you to get great analogy. Yeah. I don't need you to, to get on the boat after it's floating. Yeah. Once it's up and running, like we're building it and fixing this raft and, and getting it going. Like, I need you in the, in there with me, treading the water like in the trenches, um, because because you believe in me, not because the paycheck's going to be there. Got it. So self starting, um, yeah, invested people of character, mm-hmm. and and I trust you know everybody you know, at least most of the people in in this that are working with me or, or for me, I don't want to say for me uh, with me, in this um, are all part of the tier one organization I left. Or at least have some sort of part of it. So I trust them to be working hard. I never micromanage. I give them the the direction in which the vision that I would I see this going, and then I let them make it their own. You know, I, like Eric, I I let him run that website just a little little bit of direction of what I'd like to see, and then he runs with it. You know, and and likewise, you know, with the golf outing, like that was John's baby. That was his thing, and and all the success of it goes to him none of that was me i just said hey can you set this up make it look like this and then sits likewise with another um fundraising event we'll have in at the end of october in durham hey eric and connor set this up i just want this one thing in there make it happen and so i trust them wholeheartedly to make those connections to, to reach out to these different sponsors these different corporations and that they're going to be legitimate corporations so what i can't have is you know some a link to an organization that is too far leaning left or too far leaning right you know in the political spectrum and and their beliefs just don't align with ours like I, we are very neutral I don't I don't care what anybody believes you know uh, you know negative positive I need the main focus is to make these people better if if you hate police well help me make them better by supporting us so that you don't have to hate them so that they are less Angry so that they are less irritable um, and if you love them well, let's let's help them be better stewards to their community let's let's help these people with PTSD who are committing suicide at an alarm an alarming rate um, let's prevent that from happening in the future
0: so that is your so that's part of the leadership style is you give your
1: people an end state mm-hmm. a little bit of guidance then you get out of the way right yeah that's it because I'm lazy and I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't, but, stress, I don't want to stress. But also, you've been on the reverse of that,
0: I imagine, when mm-hmm. you've sure. been micromanaged mm-hmm. and know what it's like. Where it's the worst type of right. leadership style to work under, and it's completely ineffective. Right.
1: Um, have you had any? Can you talk about any of the testimonials so far? Um. So we we have our pilot study next next week. Okay. okay. And so our first group that will actually go through a. a a snapshot of the program. Um, so it'll be a one week in, of in-person and three weeks of virtual. Um, and that's a one to four ratio. Then the next one we'll do a two week in person and see a six week virtual. And then we'll really be able to step foot into the four week and 12 week program. Um, so all of these people, we had a lot of people apply and wanting to go to this program. Um, and so that shows that there's definitely a need um, and the testimonials, I would say, are based off of us and what we, what I've shared with you um, in my own experience, in Eric's experience, and in John's experience, Ricky's experience. Like all these people that have used these resources, we know it works. Got it. So that was uh, I was, uh, was kind of <laughs> leading to another question is. So you've seen
0: the business side of this because there is an administrative, not fun, you know, filing for a 501c3 lawyers article. Like, there's some boring monotonous admin sure it's uphill Mm -hmm. i mean it's always going to be uphill has that what you've experienced so far as far as the uphill climb has that
1: affected your fuel to execute this mission at all no um i I would say i I like the challenge i enjoy the challenge i enjoy enjoy the new the new things um what i also enjoy is you know we're where my, my challenge used to be, you know, what, what's the most complex scenario of combat I can get into and, and still succeed at now. It's what is the most complex verbal engagement I can get into (laughs) with (laughs) another, another company and get what I want out of it and, and essentially sell them, you know, tell my story and then draw out their tears and then get them to follow me. Like that's, that's one of my, that's what I enjoy. And I think, ultimately that's still what I enjoyed in in combat and it's uh, just getting people to follow me. I, I, I was able to, to read the, my team, read a group of people and motivate them enough to follow me to where, to where I wanted them to go. And so if I ever to go, you know, man, man, maybe I'm in over my head, then I'll get a phone call, um, from somebody, you know, from another, from a police officer or a firefighter or a veteran that wants to be a part of the program or wants to go through the program and, and or just needs helps needs somebody to talk to. And, and so I talk to them and I tell them my story and then they tell me theirs and then they open up. And when I hear that and I hear the, the sound of their voice and I hear their story and I, and I hear the good that we can do for these people, then I mean, that just fires and it just gets me going. And, and I think everybody needs to hear those kinds of things. I want to, I want them to to open up and be vulnerable as well and, and spread their message and, and, help people understand that they're people too. And And they, you know, they being law enforcement, they get into a firefight and then they go home to, you know, dogs, family, kids, you know, dishes aren't done. And, and how do you decompress in that environment? And, and they are human. And now, you know, spoke to one yesterday and, you know, he works in this, like I said, the same area that he lives in and that's his combat zone. So now he has to carry a gun everywhere he goes because, he might bump into somebody that he put in prison for several years and and he doesn't know what's going to happen to his or his family uh, to him or his family. And and so, man, that's challenging. And he's a human being trying to, you know, do right and do good things. Um, so that that keeps me going. That, that fires me up.
0: Dude, that's awesome, man. So there's multiple sources of fuel oh, yeah. that, you know, constantly fill the tank. Yeah. Interesting perspective. I mean, the battlefield, the quote unquote battlefield you're in right now yeah, is so different. Because now it's all hearts and minds, right? There's no, there's no bullets. There's no helos. Yeah, it's all interpersonal stuff, mm-hmm. building relationships, maintaining them, communicating uh, to your team, right? Uh, like we had mentioned earlier when we were talking offline, was how you can, you know, you got to adjust your language a little oh, bit, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, yep. to get a desired result in the civilian <laughs> oh, yeah. world. Mm-hmm. So, man, that's awesome. Well, we're about to. Uh, We're finishing up here. So, before we get into the final, you know, kind of the last part, what's something, an experience you've had with Shields and Stripes so far that
1: you didn't expect? Uh, I did not expect the the speed. Like I said, it was going to be a three-year plan. And then it turned into a two-month, three-month plan. And then the how quickly it caught on. Yeah, I, I would also say I didn't expect for some nonprofits, I didn't expect the, the nonprofit market to be so cutthroat and volatile. And, and you know people that claim to help veterans actually really don't want to help veterans. They're there for, for exactly that, the buck, the money. And that's why I tell my team is that we're never going to be about that. It will never be about numbers and it will never be about money. It'll be about getting our you know our public servants and our veterans exactly what they deserve, exactly what they need. So I didn't expect it to take flight so fast and to now be, you know entering into negotiations with a group that I wanted a job with, you know, entering into a negotiation for contracts and, and working in their space and, and potentially going on to different news networks and things like that. Like I, here I was two and a half, three months ago having a hard time telling one person my story. And now I'm, I'm about to, you know, go on to potential news agencies and tell my story to essentially, you know, counties, cities, states, the nation. Um, I did not expect that. So that's a good problem. Yeah. You have a good problem on your hands. You're just hanging on. (laughs) That's exactly. I'm (laughs) trying to to keep my head above water. (laughs) Well, your way.
0: LinkedIn picture is good, man. So that's a Thanks. good start. So Thanks, I'm, I'm glad you cleaned yeah. up for your LinkedIn picture because <laughs> they're going to start googling you and everything. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's a start, yeah. man. Awesome. Well, dude, let's finish it up. So this is where we just kind of bring it on home, man. So, what's some advice you can give for some young PJs or dudes that might want to get in the game as a into the special operations game? You know, whether it be CCT or PJ,
1: what's something you would tell them? Um, I w- I would tell them, well, you know learn how to swim, learn, learn how to swim. And, you know, have a slice of, of humble pie, eat yourself a little slice of humble pie. Um, when you think you're the best, you're going to quickly find out that you're not, um, there's always somebody better. There's always somebody more hungry than you. Um, and they may not show it to you, but they'll perform, you know, use, use your, never talk about how good you are. Show them how good you are. You know, like use your skills and your ability to speak for your, for itself. Um, and then, when people start doubting you, uh, use that as that fuel. That fuel to continue. Um, whenever I went through that pipeline, the people that quit were because they gave themselves a second option. Um, I never, th- I never thought quitting was an option. I I went through that whole phase of this is it. And what I'm going through sucks balls like this (laughs) sucks. And tomorrow's going to (laughs) suck, but I have to do it. I'm here. I have to do it. There's no other choice. I don't don't have another option. Like it's this or or nothing. Um, And likewise with what I'm doing now, like I didn't give myself a second option and, and like I'm not financially in the best place as, as good as I was. Um, And so we're, we're, we're feeling that, but I'm not. I haven't given myself another option with this nonprofit. I know it's going to succeed because I'm putting that work in. I'm putting the time in. Um, and so, um, and if you're chasing that itch, you're never going to scratch it. That itch will never be scratched. You know, for the for the for the young guys that are in the special operations community. Yeah, we we are our, our lull in the fight is here. It's going to be a different war. It's not going to be like it used to be. Um, You're always going to chase that itch. You're never going to scratch it. No matter how many people you kill, how many people you save, it'll never be scratched. Um, So I'll take that. So at some point there will be a new mission. There will be another war. And also be careful what you ask for. You know, like I never, I never asked, I never wanted people to get hurt. I never was like, man, I hope, I hope something happens. I hope something happens so I can go do my job. But if it does, if it is going to happen, I hope I'm the one that goes there. I hope it's me that that gets to to do the job. Um, but also, be careful what you're asking for because there's repercussions that come with that. Um, there will be times that, you know, you you know that'll sneak up on you. Exactly how it did did with me. Got it, man. All right, that's some pretty good advice for some young
0: PJs. All right, so where can people connect with you, Shields and Stripes website, Instagram? Where, where can everyone find you guys?
1: Yeah, if you just go onto uh, that website, that uh, www.shieldsandstripes.org, um, it should have our social media links on there. I'm not a social media guy. I only started LinkedIn not too long ago because it was supposedly the thing to do for when you're transitioning out, and it, and it actually has worked out tremendously for me. I don't use it to its full extent as I should be, um, but we're on there as well. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. I just don't manage that stuff. Somebody, somebody else manages it for me. Um, But yeah, I would love for, for people to check out the website, just see if it's something you you enjoy, see if it's something you could support. Um, And if you want to get involved, feel free to shoot an email um, at that contact email, or or if you have the means to to donate financially, we'd love that. Or, you know, services and if nothing else, you know, prayers and good thoughts for our, our participants going through. And then hopefully, we can do right to buy others. Nice. And when's the next event that's
0: on the horizon for people to participate in and potentially donate.
1: So we'll have um, a big fundraising event on the 30th of October um, out in Durham. It's at a poor top Durham, North Carolina, poor tap room. Um, So between 2 PM and 11 PM, we're going to be taking in some proceeds from their sales. Um, this is the night before Halloween, so it should be pretty busy. Yes. Um, but it's a we're good also going to be yeah, good location choice. E- exactly. Yeah. Uh, we're also going to be there selling some shirts. Uh, we have one of our teammates there. He broke his neck in an, in a farming accident. Um, he was a PJ with me actually on this way out with a medical retirement, broke his neck paralyzed now from the waist down. And, um, we recently raised forty thousand dollars for him to adapt a vehicle that was given to him by the Gary Sinise Foundation. Um, so we'll get him up and moving. We're also trying to get him to to uh, go up to Mount Kilimanjaro on a hike with us. It's something else we we like to do. Is uh, partner with another nonprofit called Adventures in Training with a Purpose, and they fund and support um, folks going to uh, Mount Kilimanjaro and other other adventures. So we partner with them. We're trying to raise money to get him out there to get some of our folks out there, some of our clients um, coming up here next year and, and the following years. So. Nice man, that's very cool. So, folks listening, go to Durham, check it out.
0: Check out the website, check out the Instagram. And in Durham, in case you don't know, Poor Tap Room is a self serve bar. So, just go. There's a lot of choices. Awesome yeah. man. Well, dude, uh, thanks for the time. Thanks for welcoming you into me, welcoming me you. Fucking <laughs> hang. I'll edit this. Thing. Welcome, me you, well, to this welcome house. me. you into this house uh, for welcoming me into your house and letting your dogs and cat hang out and good stuff. But, uh, dude, we always like to finish up with a, a kind of a cornerstone lesson. Anything from your experience, your career as a PJ and what you've experienced since getting out, you know, with shields and stripes
1: final plug for the masses that you can pass on. Yeah, I would say two things. Um, you know, you can get just about anything done that you want to do with, with three things, time, time, discipline, and focus. Um, and so that's what I tell my son is, you know, if you have the time, if you commit the time to it and give yourself the discipline and you focus on what you're doing, um, you can just, you can do anything. Um, just like, you know, I'm trying to focus on the CrossFit games and, and I'm going to put the time in, I'm going to put the focus and have the discipline to, to get it done and, you know, that requires me to stop drinking for a couple of years. I'm going to do that, you know, um, and it was, it was challenging at first, but not anymore. Um, I'm very disciplined in that. And so I, w- I would venture to say that. And then likewise with um, new guys or any of the younger guys that that I had before that looked up to the to the older guys and like, man, you like I want to be like that. I want to be, you know, I don't have the missions he has or I'm not as good as this person will. Anybody that I have that says something like that, I say the only difference between me and you is time and give it some time and you'll you get to that. You get to that level. And so um, that's all I ever say to especially my sons, my younger teammates growing up and and getting into the career field is is all it ever is is time.
0: I dig it, man. Uh, Side note on the CrossFit games, you have to win. (laughs) <laughs> so so if the you win we'll have you yeah. back on the podcast man. yeah the goal is know, we to make it we don't take any silver medalists here on the red room podcast so i'll awesome, take it man. yeah any more save rounds any any last thoughts nope all right shit hot hey this is steve and susan Rod right here folks yep. see ya Take care.